look, we don't need to make college free necessarily, right? Because college is still worth it. Sure. Right? It, you actually will, in expectation, earn enough to pay it back. So even though tuition and expenses have increased, the returns to college have increased by a greater rate. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. So Bryce Ward is back for the second edition of our new monthly series. We need a name for this series, something that Bryce rightfully shames me about at the beginning of our conversation. I'll get that done before next month. But for now, let's turn our attention to today's discussion. In the last two weeks on this podcast, we've heard from some pretty impressive thinkers. Michael Punk of Amazon Web Services and Professor Scott Latham from UMass Lowell. Both shared their view of the future of work and what that means for higher education. Today, we get Bryce's take on those important topics and much more. So let's get into it right now. Okay, so we are back with Bryce Ward. Came back for part two in the series. I don't know what we're calling the series. Do we have a name yet? No. Yeah. We should come up with one. We got to come up with something better than what's wrong. That's, yeah. That's no fun. Yeah, no. You're the marketing professor. How do you not have a name? Yeah, I know. Like, I got I to put my, uh, I don't have any people. I got to put myself on it. Yeah. Well, okay. There's the reason why we don't have a name. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay. We will, here's a pledge. You heard it here first. By next month episode, I will have a name for this series. Probably Great. shouldn't have launched it without a name, yeah. right? You know, uh, well, I guess you you have a couple days until the first one actually comes out, so you, you've got a window to... Okay, <laughs> now you've pulled the curtain back too far. People know when we're recording. Gosh. Sorry. It's supposed to be live. This is live, right? Yeah, um, yeah. You're, you're, this is live happening. So anyway, um, enough of that. So we are... We're going to talk today about the future of work. You know, we've heard from Scott Latham, a strategy professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. We've heard from Michael Punk from Amazon Web Services, and they both have some overlapping and then some distinct ideas about the future work and then how, how higher education meets that. Um, first of all, what you think of? Let's start with Scott. What you think of of what Scott had to say about the future work? So I put him into a relatively classic fourth industrial revolution is going to be big and it's going to change a lot of stuff. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Camp, you know, it's a story you hear a lot and mm-hmm. I've seen a lot. Um, by the end, he kind of walked, I felt like he was muting it, particularly as respect to how it flowed into higher ed. Sure. Uh, but uh, there were times where I was like, eh, it seems maybe stronger than I would put. But, you know, I, I think... It, I think the standard economic position on this is kind of small C conservative, which is, yeah, we've been through this before. Yep. We don't really know what it's going to be. Sure. In fact, now, when you say I've been through this before, do you mean that sort of disruption in the marketplace is a constant or that there are cycles through which it sort of becomes more poignant? Both, right? Okay. So they're talking about this as the fourth industrial revolution, sure. which means that that would mean it's one of the bigger disruptions. Right. But at every point in time, there is always disruption. Uh, so that's kind of – that's out there. Yep. And so um, obviously you – know, we actually talked about this in our very first podcast. Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, what actually happens isn't just a function of what the technology can do, 
right? And a lot of time what happens is people say, well, look at this technology. Yeah. And they start imagining the possibilities. Uh, but the market has a say, right? The actual technology that ultimately gets adopted by the market is a function of, well, where is it profitable to actually mm. implement this technology? Sure. And so it's not just what's possible, it's what's actually likely to happen. And that then depends on a whole bunch of other characteristics in the marketplace. And so, yeah, certainly all the stuff that is leading us to think that there might be this big change, AI and all the other things that are kind of surrounding this. Right. Uh, yeah, I can, I've, I've seen the stuff. Yeah, we see it happening. Oh, pockets. So it's interesting. And, that's kind of neat. Yeah. And that's kind of cool. Um, but it's not here. Sure. In the same way as, you know, like telecommunications is here, right? It's relatively mature. We've mm -hmm. seen where it is and what it can do. And it's, you know, obviously still changing, but it's kind of like, okay, I understand. Although that. it's here in the sense that, you know, and I don't want to fast forward too much to higher ed, but we'll get there. Um, but it's here in the sense that, you know, one thing Scott was saying about how like, UMass Lowell made a decision not to build a college of pharmacy, not because, you know, the pharmacist has gone away yet, but in, in anticipation that building an institution to train pharmacists might not be the right allocation of resources. Yeah. So certainly, yeah, to the extent that people are now making decisions based on weighing the risks yeah. associated yeah, yeah. with this stuff. Yeah, it's here, right? Uh, so in, that, in some sense, that means it's here. Uh, but it's not here. It, it's, it's here in that it's bets. Yeah, right? exactly. We're, we're all at Vegas, and we're placing our bets. Right. Uh, based on kind of what we think. But yeah, all the, all the accountants aren't out of work, and the plumbers aren't you know, at the top of the economy. Yeah. So, you know, right. there's lots of, there's lots of, you know, it's, it's just guesswork, yeah. right? You know, and to the extent that, look, if we knew the future, uh, I might still be sitting here because it's fun, uh, but I probably would have I, I, I put you on my jet and flown yeah. you to my private island and we would have recorded in my fancy studio. Sure. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here on, you know, not the best winterish day in Missoula. I'd stick around and say, oh, well, you're going to get good snow? Then I'll come and then... Sure, know. exactly. And it's just going to be kind of gray and wet. Eh. Right. Let's... Okay, so let's... Oregon, so let, I do like this. You know, this is one of the reasons I, I really enjoy talking to you, Bryce, because you can kind of just break stuff down to its core essence. So, you know, one, let's break down what exactly work is. Before we talk about the future of work, what is it? How That's does right. an economist think about work? That's right. I mean, that was kind of the the main thing that I took when I was listening to Professor Latham is, well, let's let's break it back all the way down. And ultimately, all work is is problem solving. Right. Right. We have a set of problems that we need to solve. Mm -hmm. And the way that we have organized ourselves is that then we create this thing called the job. Yep. In which I give you money and you do your little piece of solving whatever the problem or whatever set of the small subset of the larger set of problems that we are ultimately trying to solve. And that's like goes back to classic specialization of labor theory sure. and all of that stuff all the way down. That's right. And then, you know, this, you know, this, well, the economists would tell you, why do we do it this way? Well, it's right. because we get more efficient at it. We get better solutions to our problems. What does the economist think about problems that we create in order to solve? Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Well, I'm thinking of like, like social media. Yeah. 
you know, did I, did I, was there a, a world before social media? Or well, I, I mean, get, you were sort of thinking like, I don't, I can't keep in touch with my friends from high school so well. I wasn't thinking like I need a more efficient way to serve ads to people. Maybe no. it was. I don't know. Well, you know, that became the problem that it became a means to solve. It right? became because, like the best solution uh, to, ever for yeah. that problem. Well, you know, I was there at the launch of Facebook. Correct. So I, yeah. can, I understand the problem that it was designed to solve initially. Okay. Which is different. You can't. You're going to be coming uh, on this show every month. You can't just drop that in there. I was there. Like, yeah. what does that mean? So I was at Harvard in February of 2004. Right. I Earning was, your PhD in I economics. I was teaching a class on social networks. And I'm, you know, I within hours of it launching, I got, you know, because at the time you got invitations to join. Sure. Right? It was basically, so and so has invited you to join Facebook. And I thought it was an undergrad thing. So the I was Facebook, like, right? It the was Facebook. the Facebook. Yeah. The and Facebook. I was like, I don't want to be on this site with these undergrads, right? right. Uh, so I waited until a friend of mine who was also a graduate student uh, decided to join, and then I joined. Uh, you know, which puts my, I think my Facebook user number is like. Which is just an interesting effect in and of itself, right? Like, like you, you are the sort of, you know. Your social network drew you to register for a social network. Yeah. Well, yeah, but <laughs> exactly, right? And that was how it became this thing, yeah. right? It was yeah. this game to get the biggest social network on campus oh, kind yeah. of thing. Um, and at the time, it wasn't newsfeed, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't like sharing this kind of stuff. It was the Facebook. And what yeah. is the Facebook? It's called that because in every house, there was a Facebook. College house. Yeah. yeah residential house. Residential yeah. house. And so when you got there, you got the Facebook right. for your house. Mm-hmm. And it was a picture and a little description so that if you met somebody in the dining hall and you couldn't remember them, you could go and look it up sure. uh, in your room. But it was just for your house. Mm-hmm. So the Facebook as the Harvard social network was basically Mark Zuckerberg saying, I'm going to take the each house Facebook and we're going to put it online so you can see the entire campus. Yeah. Right. And, you know, when, again, I'm teaching a class on social networks and, you know, we, my students were, we were coming up with paper ideas for what to do with this. Right. Because ultimately at the time, the idea of what we would do you, what would you use the Facebook for Mm -hmm. would be, Oh, somebody says they're going to have a party. And you could say it. You could click. I'm going to go to the party. So you could log on and see. Oh, do I know anybody that's going to this right, party? Right. All these. So let me, or if I'm going to think about joining an organization, like the thing that you filled out your profile was like like list all the organizations that you're members of. So you mm-hmm. could go on and be like, oh, I've, I'm thinking about joining whatever club. You go and see exactly who was in the club, right? And so that was kind of what the Facebook was originally designed to solve right. right going back to your career oh yeah we got to bring to it back solve. to to work right. so there was and a so problem that there was, was a problem to solve, to solve. and right. um obviously that's not i don't think how we use facebook now uh yeah i'm not sure i don't use it very much anymore but mm-hmm. uh uh you know it seems like it's more about yeah keeping track of people who are willing to share their sure. life online but it does solve um, problems you're right you're right so yeah i mean you know uh, most I'm an economist, so I generally think that things that the market uh, creates have at least some idea of value. Yeah. Now, a lot of times what we learn is that it was silly and stupid and it was just somebody like you created the value. Yeah. Like you convinced us that we needed it. Right. But then the market uh, kind of – like we work. 
you yeah. know, not that that's not needed. It just was overvalued by a market. So markets don't necessarily work perfectly all the time, but in the long run. Yeah. I mean, the ones I go back to are things like pet rock. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, I mean, it's things that are like, oh, well, suddenly we need these things or chia pets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was kind of this fun little thing. And then it kind of goes away when people go, oh, yeah, we don't yeah, really need not that. Not so much. Uh, okay. So you've got work is the solving of a problem. Then you've got skill, right? Which is the tools you have to solve that problem. That's right. And you would then add with that effort. Right. right so you right, have right, effort right. and skill to kind of go in and solve problems. And so when we're thinking about the future of work, the real question is, do we have problems that are remain to be solved? That seems like a clear yes, right? You know, I mean, and, that might be changing. Yeah. And well, look, and yes, automation, globalization, they change the set of problems that we might here have right. an opportunity to solve, right? Like it used to be we needed a lot more people to work to create food. Well, now we've, we've largely automated the farm. Yep. Right? And so, yeah, we don't need as many people working on the problem of food, mm-hmm. right? So, but what happened? Well, there was a whole bunch of other problems that we wanted to solve, right? And so we keep moving to the next set of problems. And I don't think it's hard for any of us to sit there and imagine that, yeah, there's still problems that sure. we could be solving as a society that still require human skill and effort. Now, again, obviously machines can do a lot mm-hmm. or, you know, in the sense, you know, it's not just machines, right? It's also, you know, a human on the other side of the world I now have to compete with. And so when we really talk about the future of work, the 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 subtext really is just kind of fear of competition, right? Yeah, okay. You know, so competition at the individual level. like well, Yeah, I mean, it could be organizational composition, sure. you know, but like, you know, to the extent that I'm tied to the organization, like, look, I'm an economist. I like competition, but I also understand why people don't like yeah. competition, yeah. Uh, particularly when it comes to them maybe losing. Sure. Right. They don't want to compete with a computer, a robot, or, or somebody who's better at the job or has more skill or works harder, or, all those things. You know, or is just a whole lot cheaper. Correct. Right? Yeah. Or you yeah, know, in a different country, in a, a lot cheaper. In a different country, that's a whole lot cheaper. Yep. And so. Or, well, we'll get into this. Like, there's the power factor. Like, you could you could be right next door and just be cheaper. That's right. Yeah. You know, so, you know, look, if you compete in Missoula, you may not, and there's a competitors against you if you're yeah. whatever. Restaurant or contract or whatever it is. Right, right, right. You know, you probably get along with your competitors, but you don't necessarily like them, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they're a threat to you. Yeah. Right. And you know, so that's the nature of competition. And you know, the 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 premise of economics is that that competition, because it's stressful, it brings out brings creativity out yeah. and efficiency and yada yada yada. And I think just to be clear here, like. We're thinking of competition quite broadly. So it's not necessarily another human doing the same thing better. It could be another entity, another force, or it could it could be a completely different way of solving a problem. Exactly, right? right? So again, so if you think of like Netflix as an entertainment company, like they're competing against a lot of things. They're competing against you know, live entertainment. They're competing against the movie theater. They're competing against so many different things. So we have to sort of think of competition really broadly. Yeah. Well, again, we're going to 
I think we're going to try and keep this discussion at the level of the problem. Mm -hmm. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? And, you know, you can get some bifurcation in some places in terms of, okay, well, this is a slightly different problem. But, you know, at the broad level of thinking about the future of work, I think what we're trying to talk about is, look, we have big problems that we ultimately need to solve. And to the extent that technology or, you know, uh, some other new competitor puts me at risk – Again, why are we talking about this? it's the subtext of these conversations is the fear? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's where that's why I started thinking about okay, well let's let's try and get to the fear. And the first fear is that well, there's just not going to be any jobs left, right? And so you go, well, wait a second. Well, why, in what situations are there not jobs left? And that's where well, there's not problems to be solved. Correct. Uh, that yep. require human skill and effort. Mm-hmm. And, I think we have a plenty of problems left to solve that will likely still require human skill and effort, but I could be wrong. Well, and I don't know if wrong is necessarily the right way to classify it, but like there could be a world where we make some choices whereby automation, artificial intelligence could reduce the number of jobs required to have a healthy, fulfilled life, or I don't know if fulfilled's the, the wrong term. It's just, it would redefine like how we even cast a society. And we don't necessarily need to go there in this conversation, but some of this stuff really gets to the fundamentals of like, what is humanity and how are we, what are we here to do? That's, that's where it all ends up, Yeah. right? Because at the end of, you know, the, the next layer down from do we have sets of problems to solve is, okay, well, why am I afraid of not having a job? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Because... I'm guessing if I went to a lot of workplaces and said, hey, there's not going to be any jobs anymore, right? Part of people would be like, woohoo. But then there, you know, the, there's the fear comes from, oh, job is a means to material security. Right. Right? Now, there's other layers in which jobs can be on, you know, I don't know what model of needs you want to use, whether it's Maslow yeah. or something sure, else. Sure. But like, you know, so some, to some extent, a job is part of meaning and all these other things. It can be. Uh, Although maybe, yeah, that's an assumption embedded in our system, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, well, again, it's, it's, it could be for some people it is and some people it isn't. Correct. Right? Yep. Uh, and so then we have a different question, which is, well, look, do we... Do we need to have jobs? Mm-hmm. Is a job actually a necessary thing for living a fulfilled human life? Right. Or is job mostly a means to material security? Because we can create a different system to satisfy material security. Certainly can. Right? Yeah. Like that's a, that's a different question. Uh, if the machines do all the work, then, yeah, you know, we don't necessarily have to organize ourselves in the job world. Now, mm-hmm. that's a massive change to some sort of shared income or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's which, hard to imagine but, us having a f- system of collaboration and decision-making that could even <laughs> even attack questions like you know, that. Or, you know, if I, at least the movies that I watch are any true, it also could lead to a dystopia, right? Correct, Where, yeah. you know, yeah, it's yeah. just oppression and you're miserable and, you know, they give you some pittance and, mm-hmm. and there's some rich people off in the world that are enjoying all the fruits of the machines or whatever right, it is. But, right, uh, So let's just sort of, yeah, let's constrain this to the world is probably going to have jobs for the foreseeable future. I am not worried about this 
disruption uh, in any massive sense over at least the course of the rest of my career. Right, right, right. right. So we got several decades. We're going to hold on to capitalism of, for a little while longer? Uh, well, I don't know about that, but we'll at least hold on to jobs. Yeah, right? okay, okay. Uh, good, good clarification. You know, I mean, they're the, again, the set of problems that will require human skill and effort to solve is still large. Sure. And while there are technologies that have the promise to maybe take some jobs, even those technologies which have a lot of attention, like self-driving cars, yep. right? There's a lot of buzz, and now it's kind of like, oh, we can't get that last 10%, mm -hmm. right? You know, or, you know, in my world of data, Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember 10 years ago and it was like, oh, man, look at where all these things that we were going to be able to do with data and these big, massive data sets. And, you know, da, da, da. and then we kind of stumble on the well, it's still data that got collected by something. Yeah. And it's still subject to massive measurement error. And, you know, it doesn't always talk to each other very well. And, you know, so with again, there's huge potential. And you're like, oh, man, look at all this stuff. And then you go and you start working with it and you're like well, I can't actually get you to where I thought I was going to get you to 10 years ago, mm -hmm. right? doesn't mean that we won't close sure. that last 10, 15% or whatever it is. But as in a lot of things, that last 10, 15% is proving to be a lot harder than you might have imagined when you were telling people that it was going to change the world. I mean, I guess another way to think about it, right, is I remember 1996, right, when the internet is in its infancy. Mm -hmm. People were talking about Netflix, we didn't call it Netflix. Yeah. Right? But that was what the internet was going to bring. Sure. All this stuff. Right? It took 20 years for yeah. it to get there. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, you know, I'm fairly comfortable saying that, yeah, we got 15, 20 years until a lot of this stuff is likely to really be threatening. You know, it's not going to start threatening jobs. I think Professor Latham said this, right? We overestimate the short run effect yeah, exactly. and underestimate the yeah. long run effect. And so, but right now, a lot of the fear, the discussion, the energy is kind of predicated on, look, all the pharmacists are going to lose their jobs tomorrow. Yeah. Well, no, the pharmacists aren't going to lose their jobs tomorrow. There's a world in which there's a reduction in probably the growth of pharmacy jobs uh, at some point in the future. Right. And I talked about this actually on my very first podcast, mm -hmm. right, about the hump-shaped curve of technology. Yep. Because initially what happens is the technology comes in, it makes a set of products cheaper, demand for that product grows by amount, that you actually end up hiring more workers in until the technology change sure. slows down and the cost growth stops. And that's when you actually start substituting purely machines for workers. And so it's a long process. So... It's important to have these conversations about the future of work now because, and I think you also got into that conversation, which is there's a lot of, part of our problem with technology is we didn't think enough about the ethical ramifications. There's that, that absolutely. As we did. In fact, I'm patient zero for Cambridge Analytica. Oh, for real? Yeah. Gosh, you're dropping all sorts uh, of like crazy. I wrote my dissertation on social networks at Harvard. Okay. The year that Facebook came out. Mm -hmm. I used the Facebook to get to Mark Zuckerberg. Yep. Turns out that some of my students were his next door neighbors. I said, well, it'd be great to have... Have your Facebook, data? Have the data. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I'll email these guys and see if they'll set it up. Yeah. Within an hour, I got an email saying, sure, what do you want? Can I have the whole thing? Wow. 
yeah, I'll send it to you tomorrow. Right, so you know, interesting. We're sort of getting a picture into either <laughs> like, either the ethical blind spots or just the, you know, it was yeah. just it was wow. it was just that was sure. I'll send you the file. Was, yeah, here's the you know, great. Here's the whole matrix. You know, all the information about them, so you can do what you want with it. Right now, I should have followed up and tried to get a job or do something like that, but I wasn't. Or very least enough. some equity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. like, uh, then we could really be doing that podcast but on I was, private island. But you know, I mean, I was used to at that point. I was far. I mean, this was the end of my graduate. Yeah. I'm used to data agreement and sure, all this yeah. kind of stuff. I'm expecting this to be a hurdle, but like, you know, this is a nothing company run out of a dorm room. Sure. And she was like, yeah, sure, you want it? Here you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I looked at that. Oh, that's that. telling, right? Like, like, as you said, patient zero, like we think about all, you know, in their defense, like they could be thinking about all the awesome things they could be doing with this technology and probably are, right? And, and just to have a blind spot to the, what are all the bad things that people could do? And exactly, right? And a lot of awesome things probably yeah. could have been done with these yeah, data, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, you know, data is information. You can figure out new things. Now, what we decided to do with it was figure out how to market products to you. And I guess that's a, you know, you're the marketing professor. Maybe oh, that's man. a good thing. It's like the best minds uh, of our generation are <laughs> figuring know. out how to serve me ads more efficiently. You that's know, sort of depressing. Uh, a new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is Cameron Lawrence, MIS professor in the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. But uh, I think that's fair, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, to some, to some degree, it is nice when you get the ad for the thing that you want, right? It's true. Uh, yeah. I mean, I talked about it with students. Like, they don't really care about the privacy concerns. They're like, yeah, it's, I, I get better stuff in my feed. Like, it's, it's stuff I want to look at. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's, and that's, you know, that seems to be a majority attitude among a lot of people until... Until there's a problem. Until you realize yeah, yeah. what's really being done with it. Right? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I just think that there's a lot of... Uh, we're just ignorant for the most part. We don't mm-hmm. know what's being done. And... Usually, when you start to explain to people what's actually being done, it kind of freaks them out. I saw the New York Times like a year ago did a thing on just like location tracking on your cell phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, I immediately turned off all of oh, the, for real? the the location stuff on, mm-hmm. you know, I have like, you know, if I'm in Google Maps and I want to turn it on, I'll turn it on. But like, yeah, I have this conversation fairly regularly with people who are convinced that their phone is listening. Like they'll have a conversation about X, Y, or Z, you know, and then the next day or that afternoon or five minutes from then, they'll see an ad for something from their conversation. And so they immediately conclude that the phone is listening. And I'll talk to my data science friends and they'll say, actually, the phone is not listening. The algorithms are that good. So to me, like, that's almost scarier than the phone listening. Yeah. A world where, like... They can make you think they're they're so good that they can make you think they're listening. Yeah, no, I think look, I think again, the promise of technology is great. Yeah, and it's probably on net positive to be willing to allow technology to try and be as great as possible. Sure. Where I think we're at now is the point of okay. Let's have a actual social discussion. Yeah, let's have a reckoning. Like yeah. about okay, well, we've let you go and do your thing, and yeah, there might be some destruction of value, mm-hmm. right, from those companies and their workers, right, and their owners. 
Yeah. Um, but the rest of us have to decide because it's still a society in which collectively we get to decide how it works. You know, I think it's up for us to have, it's time for us to have the discussion in a real sense about, okay, let's, let's let, again, we don't need to be doing this as individual voters, right? But we need some educated set of people who actually understand what's going on and how it works. Mm -hmm. And if you've watched any hearings on Congress about technology, that is not the body. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly, you know, it might be a great pause for something where, which we've talked about not on this podcast yet, but like where we draw a random jury of the public and we educate them and we bring in experts and we say basically have kind of like a trial mm -hmm. uh, and basically say, well, where do we want to draw lines and then let them kind of guide us and then like take that to Congress and to legislatures and to the executives and say, all right, we had a random group of people consider this these issues and this is what they told us they're comfortable with and what they're uncomfortable with and here are some places where you might draw some lines and you know what some trade-offs are but um let's let's put a pin in that one yeah future episode you know how we're going to fix congress right or bypass it completely yeah anyway but that th those are the sorts of things we'll be talking about but let's bring it back to this okay so we've agreed there is going to be no shortage of jobs in the near future. Well, I shouldn't say well, shortage. There will be jobs for the foreseeable future. We've agreed, we agree on that premise. We, you know, there will be normal ebbs and flows within the labor market. Yep. Uh, I do not see any reason to think that there will be some sort of secular decline in the number of jobs that isn't somehow driven by demographic sure. forces. Okay. And so the skills required to do those jobs change as the jobs change, change as um, as competition changes, right? How do you how do you sort of think about the skill side? Well, the skill side is really just so basically there's a set of problems. Yep. Right. And um, I can compete with a machine to solve that problem mm -hmm. or I can compete with a worker in some other either firm. So that could be in the same community as me. Yep. Uh, in some other community. We're in some other country. Yep. Right? And so I'm facing competitive pressures from any of those things. Now, depending on whether or not my me or my firm or the industry cluster that I'm in locally is successful at winning that competition, the skills required will change. Right? If, sure. If the, if the problem that I'm working to solve is solved by somebody else in some other location, whether it's a machine or another human... Well, now I've got to change, right? I now have to find a new thing that I can contribute, right? Right, And if I was doing something very specific, right, well, then I'm in the deepest trouble, mm -hmm. right? Because now I have to go back and I have to do something very different, yeah. right? To the extent that I have more generalizable skills, then in theory, I should be able to find some other job. Sure. But, you know, so in terms of the specific set of skills, it depends on, well, okay, well, what's competing with me? What's winning the competition? And, okay, so then what, what are the problems that I can solve either living where I live or wherever I'm willing to live? Mm -hmm. And how do you map this on to, let's pivot the conversation a little bit to education, mm -hmm. not necessarily higher education. I mean, that's part of it. Um, because that's one of the big takeaways I had from listening to, to Michael Punk and listening to Scott Latham and just thinking about this myself. Like, 
we got to get from this the value form to use Latham's language of education is changing. And so how, when we're thinking about these problem skills, like how do we create it? What would be if you were to redraw up an education system today, what where would you start? So the challenge uh and it, it's the challenge that I mean higher ed is the place to really you know, it's actually goes into secondary as well, yeah. right? Is it's the tension between specific and general. Yeah. Right? So when I was in high school, you know, and my dad was on the school board for a long time, you know, there's always been this discussion about the form of secondary education in the United States. Yeah. Right? Because if you went to, say, Germany, you get put into a track. Mm-hmm. Right? You are going to the technical. You are going to post-secondary. Right. And there's right? tests and gatekeeping you know, functions. And yeah, it happens absolutely. much, much earlier than we do. Mm-hmm. Right? But again... It's always the tension in education is always between the specific marketable skill yep. and the general thing that is basically they're general skills that apply in lots of areas, mm-hmm. but you have to take the extra mile on your own to some degree. Yeah. Right? That's kind yeah. of the tension between the professional schools on a campus and the arts and humanities, right? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, that, there's overlap, obviously, because you have to do stuff in kind of all of them. But, sure, and we're not laying this tension but, out as necessarily a bad thing. It's sort of a, a, a feature, not a bug of the but system. Exactly, right? And so, you know, a lot of the tension in higher education currently is, man, if you get those really sexy te- technical skills while you're in college, you make a lot of money right out of college. Right, right. right? Whereas if you didn't get the sexy technical skills in college, you don't make a lot of money out of college. Mm-hmm. Now, what we know, actually is that the people who didn't get the sexy technical skills, they catch up. Their growth rates are faster over time. Over time. Then, you know, because a lot of times what happens to the sexy STEM graduate, is, you know, and, and Professor Latham talked about this as well, is I learned this language. And then the yeah, new language. Python. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, then new language came out, right? And so the can I learn the new language or, or do I shift into something that's different, that's sure. management or whatever it is? And so... You know, that's kind of – it's always going to be there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't think it means that we have to change education at all. What I think we have to do a better job of is recognizing that somebody who makes a choice to get what I'll call generalizable skills yep. isn't making a bad choice. Mm. Right? You know, because there's a lot of this, well, what are you going to do with that? Right, right. And what are you going to do with that degree in English? Literally all of my friends as undergraduates, I lived in a house and there were three English majors in me. Okay. Uh, you know, they hated <laughs> the what are you going to do with that question. Sure. I can tell you now, yeah. as you know, we're all 20 plus years out of college, right? They're all doing fine. I'm sure. Right? In fact, one of them is doing finer than anybody that I know. Uh, but like, you know, it's... But there was an adjustment period, Mm -hmm. right? You know, their initial period right out of school was temp jobs and, you know, trying this out and trying that out. And, you know, that was not the case relative to the people who were like, I'm going to be, you know, whatever it is. I mean, the thing that I think is tough within this is just the the debt and the payback period like students are taking on more debt to get these the, these forms of education and so it it that drives the conversation a little bit or that drives the calculus between um this the monetizable skills the immediately, immediately monetizable, monetizable skills. skills and then the 
the skills that are going to serve you in the long run. Yeah, and so and part of the challenge becomes, you know, if the challenge is is when should you have to repay the debt? There's right? that. Yeah, I mean so that's a structural question. That's, right, we can change in, that structure. In some sense, that I think is the actual problem. Yeah. Yeah. Right, we're basically taking a twenty-year-old who's still in, you know, who's not necessarily, you know, look. If you're going immediately into the sixty thousand dollars a year job, fine, sure. start paying it back. But if you're, I'm going to start bouncing around for another ten years, and I'm not just going to go to graduate school. If I go to graduate school, it all pauses, right? Yeah, yeah. But like, uh, you know, we we need to basically structure the debt so that we're not expecting you to start repaying it at twenty-two. Mm-hmm. Right, no twenty-two-year-old needs to have sixty, eighty thousand dollars in debt that they're repaying. That they're obligated to pay. Right? Yeah, we should right basically, away. you know, again, this is I'm throwing out a random policy idea. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, we don't need to make college free necessarily, right? Because college is still worth it. Sure. Right. It, you actually will, in expectation, earn enough to pay it back. Right. The issue is the terms. To of be how clear, we, like the data support that. So even though tuition and expenses have increased, the returns to college have increased by a greater rate. Yeah, yeah. Right? And you would argue, like in this world we're talking about, that would persist. Like education will continue to have value. Again, particularly where it will potentially not have value is to the extent it's focused on technical skills. Right. Right? Right. It's the things that are currently high return are the ones that are likely to, you know, where you may actually, that's where you face the biggest risk. High, high return, if, short lifespan. If you're learning how to write, yeah. how to do basic analysis, uh, how to be good in social interactions, mm-hmm. you don't, you'll find a job, right? Those are problems that will require, you know, we don't, the machines are not good writers yet. Maybe they'll get there. I don't think they will because mm-hmm. writing is a creative human endeavor. Right, it's about figuring out how to communicate an idea that's in your head or your team's head sure. to some other set of humans. And it's a skill, right? You know, just like you know, whatever, doing the analysis to figure out how to program the machines. You know, there's the there's the specific technical aspect of it, but the creative part, yeah, right, the figuring out what to do with the machine, mm-hmm. how to structure it, right. If you're getting good at that. That can't be taken away from you. Yeah, that's right? good shelf life for sure. And so, you know, it's to the extent that we're trying to drive general skills out of education, that's where we're making a mistake, mm-hmm. right? Because you, it's the general skills that allow you to thrive and adapt in a world where competition is a real thing. Because that's basically what we mean. When we tie education, the discussion of education to the discussion of the future of work where it's implicit in there that there's essentially more competition, we're basically saying, well, go be more competitive, Right. Yep. That's what education is supposed yep. to do. It's supposed to be, you know, to the extent, again, setting aside the personal high order needs stuff sure, about education, self-actualization, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. That's really important and good. Yep. But from the look, to the extent that we're linking education and jobs, right, the education job link is fundamentally about go be more competitive. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's two ways to be competitive. Right. I can be a generalist who can adapt a generic set of skills to a whole wide variety of problems. Right. Or I can be a specialist who can take a really extensive, deep level of problem solving and a skill and apply it to a very narrow set of problems. 
Now, as long as the narrow set of problems is scarce, right? Those skills are scarce. I can do really well, but I'm putting my eggs in a basket, one basket. Yep. Right. So this is, they're just different risk strategies. Yeah, and it feels like kind of a false dichotomy. They are in a way like you can you can an institution of higher learning has to do both. And then that's why we have Gen Ed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's why we don't let you. You mean we don't have it as a crazy way of allocating student credit hours across departments and divisions? Well, and... you can know more about that than <laughs> I do. But I don't like, think we in, know much about in, that. In theory, yeah. right? In theory, the gen ed requirements are supposed to ensure mm-hmm. that you can write, that you've been exposed to a variety of ideas and topics and understand kind of humanity. Uh, and, you know, you have some amount of quantitative skills, right? Sure. Uh, now, in my perfect world, we would be adding social-emotional development to that gen ed mm-hmm. because I think that's really where the future human skill is. And, we're, you know, I know from evidence that that's really the distinguisher, right? You get a lot of people that can be good at technical skills. Yeah. The ones who really advance are the ones who marry technical skills. Well, I mean, that's how our system works, yeah. right? Like you become the manager of people and the leader of people. And if you can't manage those situations, you don't advance. Well, even if you're not managing people, right? Like we, we talked about this on the first podcast, yeah. right? Like my social network is my can be just my memory, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I have a bigger, better social network, I have more information to draw on, more favors to draw on. It allows me to just be more individually productive. Mm-hmm. And so even if I'm not trying to be a manager, I'm just trying to solve a particular problem myself, more social skills means I have more resources to bring to bear on the problem. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. So, um, well, yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem becomes in a world of scarce resources, Yeah. Uh, people have a tendency to view things as zero sum. Mm-hmm. And maybe there is a zero-sum component to it. And if there is, then we're just doomed because once you're in a zero-sum fight, you're in a fight. It's tough, yeah. We can't build trust, Mm -hmm. right? Trust comes from cooperation leads to better outcomes for everybody, right? And if we can't create a cooperative outcome, then yeah, you're just going to end up in this fight. But I think what I guess we're saying is we have some misnomers about oh, we should be doing this because, oh, these guys get these great jobs right out of college. And I think that is that is something that is, it's true. If I look at your first year salary, yep. right after you get out of college, of course, you should be doing technical skills. But A, you shouldn't be deciding what to do in college based on earnings, mm-hmm. right? That's that is That should be like what tips you at the margin. Well, right. yeah, I mean, that's value judgment. Like, people got to make their own choices on that. Well, no, but, but you know, we, you've, got to, you've got to do what you're good at, right? right? Like, if you're trying – if you're sitting there as, a, as an 18-year-old saying, I'm going to do this because there's money in it, but you're not actually good at it. Yeah, that's a problem. You've made an error. And I used to counsel – you know, when I was in a graduate school, so Harvard does not have a business school, right? So – all the people who want to major in business, Under, undergraduate, undergraduate school. yeah, they don't yeah, have an yeah. undergraduate business major. All well, the people I've heard, I've heard of their their yeah, MBA program. Yeah, they you know, whatever. It's across the river. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's, yeah. it's, it's this other whole other world. Uh, so you know, all the undergraduates who would likely probably major in business, they measure in economics because they think that's kind of business. Sure. And I guess there's some overlap there, but it's not 
really. Mm -hmm. And so when my, I used to have all my students, they'd have to come talk with me. I always ask them, why are you studying this? And when they were like, well, because I want to get a job. I'm always like, that's, that's the trigger to start digging. Yeah. Well, do you like the material? No. (laughs) I hate it. Are you good at it? No, I barely scrape by. What do you want to do? History, psychology. I love those classes. Uh Uh-huh. Go do that. Yeah. Do what you're good at is the first rule Mm. of success in a job. Now, if you're good at a lot of stuff, then great. Go find the highest return. But you should never... Going and sitting there going to, you know, because we have the data now, like going and saying, well, what do people make the first year out of of college? What do they make the most money out? I'm going to go major in that. That's that's not a recipe for a lifetime of success. Sure. Yeah. I, I your point is taken. Although I think of that about that student you were talking about in our previous conversation that was like, I just want to be the CEO of that that company on campus. Yeah. And because that's the golden ticket. They yes. don't really care what the job is, but the fact that there is a guaranteed job. Anyway, so yeah, students have a bunch of different things. And I agree with your premise that, you know, figure out what you're good at and do that. That's you know, the first step. You know, what do you like to do? What do you want yeah, to do? Yeah, where's like, the intersection of skill and passion? And then, go, yeah, I mean, it's not to say that money is irrelevant. Right. Right? It's just that I feel like a lot of times, and sometimes this comes from parents. Yeah. It's like, well, that's where the money is. Well, and if parents go are footing the that. bill, largely it's the parents oftentimes either paying out of their savings or, um, you know, it's co-signing a loan or any, any sort of mixed form. But, you know, I mean, the message that I would give to students who want to fight their parents on this is you have to be patient. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that, you know, just because I'm choosing to major in something which won't have a immediate payoff that's likely to be high at 23 doesn't mean that when I'm 40, I'll be, like, still struggling and destitute. I'll figure it out. I'll have a general skill. Yeah. And it will, like, you know... We have papers well, that actually show this. That, yeah, and within know. that, Bryce, I like to think that an institution like the University of Montana, like institutions by their nature are not super agile, right? In, in many ways, like a place like a college or a university is designed to move slowly. And we can debate the values of that. But within that, like it's because it's so hard to start a new curriculum here, uh, we're not very good at 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 spinning up new ideas and being responsive to the marketplace. And so we should be able to you know, identify an area where there's an immediate need, uh, whether that area is fleeting or not, but be able to serve that need, solve that problem, and then move on to the next thing. Stop teaching Python and start teaching the new language. And that requires agility as an institution and with people within the institution. It's, And that's where I worry about some of these other forms of education delivery can disrupt us in 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 the near term yeah and so what you're getting into there is the internal power dynamics of an institution yeah right because to move to agile certain people that have certain amounts of power have to give it up i.e tenured professors yeah Uh, tenure's a problem you know well i mean it's just a power structure correct right you know and you know i mean i think to the extent that workers can get power, it's very nice if they can get it. Yeah. You know, because, you know, if you lose that power, we see what happens to mm-hmm. workers. Um, the challenge is, you know, how do we get you to use that power for quote unquote good? Right. As right. opposed to use it to obstruct, you know, progress. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the tension. You know, I mean, 
So I was watching The Irishman the other day, right? So I don't know if you wish this Netflix movie. Yeah, I don't really have four hours of time just sort of hanging around. You know, I watched it over four days. Uh, Okay. You know, know, basically it was like I would go sit on the treadmill and I would watch 45 minutes of it. and, uh, you know, it's, it's about, you know, it's essentially about the marriage of Jimmy Hoffa, the Teamsters Union and the mob. And I'm sitting there watching it going, well, this is essentially, you know, so right now we're in a moment where we feel like workers have relatively little power. And that's part of why, you know, we talked about this in the last conversation yep. where, you know, some some of the malaise that we feel comes from the fact that work feels very yeah low power you know i don't have a lot of control yep. i'm kind of at the whims and yada 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 and you know so great well here's a union that fought really hard to get its workers into better shape but sometimes they use that power for maybe yeah. not so great in that stuff and yeah. so you know the challenge that we have is you know look we're not we give people power and we don't always like it how they use it and then the question is is well how do we shave off the parts where we're like, yeah, you shouldn't have that power without taking it all back and giving it to somebody else who we don't like how they use the power, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some of that's judgment, right? So sometimes the, the tenured faculty member is saying, well, I don't want to give the power to the administration because the administration is a bunch of morons, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes the administration is morons, right? Uh, you know, uh so, like, you know, there's that's there's a reasonable tension there. Sure. Right? But the challenge is, yeah, universities need to be creative, not just in their research output, but also in how they're coming to the market. And, you know, allegedly there's some giant baby bust on the horizon. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the enrollment you know, cliff. The enrollment yeah, cliff. 2025. Yeah. And which means that universities, <laughs> yeah. they got about seven years to figure out how they're going to compete for a much smaller, you know, yep. either they are going to have to increase the share of people who go to college mm-hmm. or they're going to compete for a much smaller share, which means that you, again, you are competing, right? And that's the thing that institutions sometimes struggle with, yeah. particularly long-term historical institutions like universities is they get captured by their workers, right? Shared governance, right? You know, basically the employee runs the institution, uh, and there's historical reasons for that, which I won't get into. Uh, but sometimes it means you're not very nimble because your 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 primary focus is on protecting the worker, as opposed to competing for the resources you need to ultimately satisfy those workers' needs. Because the resources come from donors and students. Yeah, yeah. And donors, including the public. Right, and I think within that, like embedded in in that, is an assumption that we continue to compete in the same way. Right, like we could, if there's a declining number of 18-year-olds or whatever it is, right? Like, should we be? We should serve 18-year-olds. We should continue to serve 18-year-olds, but we probably should be serving 58-year-olds and 48-year-olds and all these people throughout a much longer time horizon. I mean, that would be a form of innovation that I think would instill our relevance, sustainability, and and maybe manage these tensions a little bit more productively. Yeah, and that requires real creativity because yeah. you know, while you do everybody knows it's a classic thing, the the older student in the 18-year-old predominant classroom, it's a weird thing. Oh yeah. And so I'm guessing there's a lot of 48-year-olds who are a little bit hesitant to do it. Mm-hmm. And so it might require a completely different business model yeah. to serve that population. Um 
but it's certainly the type of thing that you would hope that a creative industry would be sitting there saying, all right, well, how do we... Yeah, our jobs are be to create, are, are are to, to be, be creative. creative. Yeah, right? I think people and, lose sight of that a little and, bit. And, you know, it's not, again, it's not just to be creative in my new research article yeah. or in even how I'm delivering to my current students. It's as an institution, you need to be, and that, there's whole levels of institutions within the university, right? The College of Business is an institution mm -hmm. within this larger institution. But, yeah, well, how are you want to, how are you going to compete? Because... Again, true competition, again, from economists, is, well, look, what skills do we have here, right? What problems can we solve? And I'm sure that there is a set of problems that some 48-year-old set of people, I don't know why I'm picking up 48-year-olds, but... Yeah. Uh, I know plenty you know, of 48-year-olds. Some <laughs> of my best friends are 48, Bryce. You know, uh, who, you know... There's value you could provide them. Absolutely. Right? And the question is, is can you organize your resources in a way that you can capture that value and mm -hmm. that, that return on that value justifies the opportunity cost of the resources involved? And my guess is that those conversations are relatively rare. Uh, you know, and to the extent that it's you have It's not typically them, on the faculty senate agenda. Uh, let's put it that way. You know, to the extent that you might have some sort of strategic committee or whatever it is that's supposed to think about this kind of stuff. Sure. Uh it probably doesn't get to the level of action all that often. Mm -hmm. You know, another problem we have to solve is coming up with a name for this thing by next month. <laughs> okay. Tuesdays with Bryce. I don't know. That could work. Is it, these things drop on Tuesdays. Every right? Tuesday, man. Come on. But it's not every Tuesday. It's every, every four well, Tuesdays. The Bryce episode is not every Tuesday. That's right. Uh, Every fourth no, Tuesday no with Bryce is a little clunky. <laughs> a little clunky. Look, it might be some neat acronym. Anyway, yeah, we got to land the ship. Bryce, thanks for coming back. Um, next week or next month, we'll be talking about all sorts of awesome stuff. And uh, yeah, I look forward to it. We could go Rogan style sometime and go three hours and just as, a, as an experiment <laughs> and see if we can test the limits of our bladders yeah. and our audience's patience. So maybe uh, we'll get there. Well, I think the advantage of just drolling these out is that we don't have to go for three hours. Or if we do go for three hours, we could break it into three hours. Oh, chance. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Changing the value form. There we go. Okay. Thanks, Bryce. Yep. All right. That was fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Bryce, we'll be back next month to keep the series alive. And by then, we'll have a name. I promise. It might not be a good name, but we'll have one. Okay. Coming up next week, we have number 10 in the Sea Change series. It's a conversation with three amazing women, Chris Fiore, Denise Grills, and Glenda Bradshaw. These three women are central to the Women's Leadership Initiative here at the University of Montana. I'm excited for you to learn all about it next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. And before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag, a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.